Beloved, I invite you to to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 and 13. If you are uh, visiting with us uh, this morning, as I've noticed, there are uh, many visitors here today. Uh, We are in our 66th week in Romans, and so uh, a lot has gone uh, before us as we uh, open our Bibles to uh, this text, Uh, but I hope that you'll be uh, encouraged uh, this morning to uh, to dig deep into this marvelous book, a, a veritable catechism for the early church on uh, major doctrines like the depravity of man and and justification by faith and sanctification and and election and and glorification and the Christian life. Uh, but we are smack dab in Romans eight, one of the greatest uh, chapters in all of the Bible, and enjoying our time here. We are in no rush, uh, and so we'll begin. Uh, uh, at least Sermon 1 on these two verses, and we'll see uh, how many we may, uh, may squeeze out of this. There's so much here that's important for our Christian lives and, uh, and, and points that we don't often think about um, that aren't stressed in our own day. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word in Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your Word. It is a light unto our path. It is a lamp unto our feet. And we pray, Lord, that we would truly hide it in our hearts by your Spirit, as it is proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Once upon a time, there was a grand wedding. The whole town was buzzing with excitement. And one man in particular was thrilled that he had been invited. Indeed, he had never been to such a magnificent occasion. The wedding invitation stated that all male guests must wear a spotless white suit of a certain make and model. This suit was strictly required for entry into the reception. No one would be given entry without it. Well, after the beautiful ceremony, the man began uh, cheerfully walking over to the reception. It was all so magnificent. He could hear the music coming from the ballroom. He was taking it all in and admiring his surroundings when suddenly... He stumbled to the ground. When he got up, he was devastated to see that his suit was dirty, very dirty. He thought to himself, maybe the doorman won't notice. Maybe I can get into the ballroom anyway, even with my soiled suit. But as he tried to enter, he was prevented. I'm sorry, sir, you may not enter uh, this reception with your suit in such disarray. The father of the groom was adamant on this point. Male guests may only enter with a spotless white suit. Nothing else will do. Well, as you can imagine, the man was crushed. He'd been looking forward to this grand wedding for months. Now he was being sent away. He could not enter. But as he turned to walk away, dejected, he heard a voice from the top of the steps. Where are you going? He looked up, and to his surprise, it was the father 
of the groom. The dejected man said to him, I stumbled and my white suit is dirty and I wasn't allowed to enter. The father said, wait just a minute. And he walked back into the reception and he came out with his son. The father looked at both of them and said, you look like you are both about the same size. Son, would you be willing to give your suit to this man? And he said, of course, I'd be delighted to. The man was overwhelmed by the kindness and the generosity and the love that he was shown. Who was he to receive such a gift? But they went even further. The son told him that before he went to get another suit for himself, he would begin cleaning the man's dirty suit immediately to remove the the topical dirt and, and to prevent any initial staining. He then told the man that in the coming days and weeks, he would like for them to work on cleaning it together so that one day it would be white and spotless again, just like the sun's, just as it was before he fell. I guarantee you that it will be clean again if I'm cleaning it, the son said, but I want your help in doing it. Beloved Christ Church, every illustration uh, falls short in some way uh, when we're talking about uh, the things of God. But here I want us to see represented in this little story that I wrote uh, the doctrines that Paul unpacks uh, really throughout this entire book so far, but particularly in Romans 1, uh, 8, 1 through 13, namely the foundational doctrines of justification and sanctification. The spotless suit given to the man by the Son represents the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ, given to all of those who receive Christ by faith. This righteousness is not earned. It is a free gift. It clothes the forgiven sinner. It justifies him and gives him unhindered access to and fellowship with God, the triune God. Without this righteousness, a sinner remains under God's just wrath and curse. He's still under the dominion of sin and of the law. But with Christ's righteousness, again, received as a gift through faith, as Paul says in 8.1, there is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus. But here's what our text for this morning in verses 12 through 13 underscores. Through faith in Christ, now please get this, through faith in Christ, we are not only justified, we are also being sanctified. That is, being cleansed from the remaining indwelling sin that is in us and being conformed unto Christ. Sanctification is being cleansed from remaining indwelling sin and growing more and more in conformity to Jesus Christ. That's what is represented by the son and the man cleaning the dirty suit. The man is wearing the son suit, and so he has been approved by the father, justification. But his own suit must still be cleansed, sanctification. 
His suit must be cleansed to look like the sons. That's the aim of sanctification, to conform to the Lord Jesus Christ. The grounds of our justification, of our position before God, is the righteousness of Christ alone. Nothing added. But the fruit of our union with Christ through faith is sanctification. It's growth. It's transformation. It's important to remember these things as we come to this text. This is a foundational point, which we find in our text. The work of sanctification is a joint work. It is, as theologians say, synergistic. Our regeneration, our justification, our adoption, and our glorification in Christ is all monergistic. God does it. We are passive in that. We do nothing to adopt ourselves. We do nothing to justify ourselves. We do nothing to glorify ourselves. We cannot make ourselves alive in Christ. But when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, we are participating. Now, it's important to say this. God will surely do it. But we are called to give ourselves fully to it. Amen? God will surely do it. But we are called to give ourselves fully to it. The indwelling Spirit sanctifies us, but He enables and empowers us to participate in that work of sanctification. A couple of important passages on this point. On the point that God will do it, that God will, that God guarantees our sanctification is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Now listen, he will surely do it. That's encouraging. That our sanctification is not up to us. Although we are commanded to participate in that work of sanctification. We are not passive. In 2 Peter 3.18, we are commanded to do it. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. And then in Philippians 2.12 and 13, we not only see that God is at work in sanctification, but also that we are at work in sanctification. And there is this glorious relationship there in this work of grace. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do, excuse me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is the work of sanctification, but which is it? Is it God's work or is it ours? Answer, yes. Yes, sanctification is God's work. He guarantees it. If we are in Christ, we will be on that road of sanctification. But it is also our work to do, enabled and empowered by the Spirit of God. 
It's only because God has freed us. This is important. And it really relates so much to our text in Romans 8 and also really (laughs) chapters 6 and 7. It's only because God has freed us by his grace from the tyranny of sin and of the flesh and given us his spirit that we are able to do this and that we want to do this. Apart from Christ and his spirit, we can do nothing. We do not desire to be sanctified apart from his spirit. You say, oh, pastor, I feel like my sanctification process is so slow. Well, join the club. You rarely meet a Christian who says, you know, my sanctification, I'm, doing, I'm just so spiritual and, and godly. My sanctification is just fourth gear, 100%. You, you rarely will hear, hear such uh, arrogance. But here's the comforting thing that we'll mention over and over this morning, that God in Christ guarantees our sanctification. We will grow. We will grow by his grace, but we are also participating. And to the measure of our participation and yielding to the Spirit and obedience in the Lord, we will grow and mature. And so there are passages in Scripture, of course, where Paul says, what, you're still drinking milk? Like a baby? You should be eating meat. And so there are challenges, of course, if we are staying in a certain kind of uh, immaturity as a Christian, we should be growing and maturing uh, in God's word. In sanctification, we are working out what God is working in. We are working out what God, by His Spirit, is working in. Now, there are a couple of errors I want to mention uh, about sanctification, errors of imbalance uh, that have arisen over the centuries on this very point. Of course, Paul dealt with this, as we have mentioned many times here in the book of Romans, and that's the, uh, the idea that is connected to antinomianism. It's the, 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 the error that sanctification is passive, the kind of let go and let God approach. I'm a Christian, I'm justified, I'm forgiven. I'm not going to really worry about living the Christian life. I'm not going to worry about obedience. I'm not going to worry about duty. I'm not going to worry about living out the faith and and paying attention to God's word because God's going to sanctify me. It's just going to happen. It's just in the wake, in the wake of my justification, I'll be sanctified. And that's an error that uh, exists in uh, the the church, and even in, in, the, in the Reformed church, it is a problem. And so sanctification is neither passive, where no effort or very minimal effort is given to our growth and maturity in Christ, but neither is sanctification, uh, nor is sanctification based merely on our toil and effort. This is another great imbalance in sanctification that is kind of all up to us. It's a kind of self-reliant pull yourself up by your bootstraps because it's all up to you approach. That God has done what he's, he's going to do. He saved you. Now it's kind of up to you to make yourself holy. That too isn't a great error. And it leads to self-righteousness or great discouragement. One of the two. But sanctification, while being, a God, while being God's work, is something that through his work we are enabled to participate in Uh, in the Christian life. So all of this, dear ones, is by way of introduction 
because it's extremely important to keep these things in mind as we come to our text for this morning, a text that plays a vital role in our understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. And so there are two points I want to make this morning. And again, this is not uh, our, our only sermon on this, this, this text, um, far from it. But uh, this morning, these two points I want to make. Christians are no longer indebted to the flesh. And secondly, Christians by the Spirit mortify remaining indwelling sin. Number one, Christians are no longer indebted to the flesh. Number two, Christians by the Spirit mortify remaining indwelling sin. First of all, Christians are no longer indebted to the flesh. Look with me again at verses 12 and the first part of 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. What does this mean? What does this unusual statement mean that we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Well, we must first of all consider the context, of course, of these two verses. Notice Paul employs this transitional statement at the beginning of verse 12. So then, brothers... This, of course, signals that Paul is referencing all that has come before, and especially in verses 5 through 11. The apostle, you'll remember, has set forth the great contrast between those who live in the flesh and those who live in the Spirit. Paul explained to the Roman Christians that those who live in the flesh or according to the flesh are hostile to God. We saw that in the previous verses. They do not and cannot submit to God's law. They cannot please God. They are depraved. They are in the flesh. They are not believers. They are still under the tyranny and mastery of sin and the flesh. But then Paul contrasts it in verses 5 through 11. Those in the Spirit have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And those who are in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They find life and peace in Christ. Paul continues to explain in verses 9 through 11 that the Roman believers are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead would surely raise them from the dead as well. And then this brings us to Paul's indicative in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In other words, You no longer serve that master. The flesh is no longer over you. He no longer controls you. You no longer live under the flesh's rule and dominion. You are no longer subject to it. You owe the flesh nothing. We as Christians do not report to the flesh. We no longer live in the patterns of the flesh or live according to the wisdom of the flesh, which is what? Informed by the world and Satan and our remaining sin. That's what it means that we are no longer indebted to the flesh. As believers, on the other hand, united to Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, we live according to the Spirit. We answer to Him. 
we yield to Him. We live according to His wisdom, which is found in God's Word. The pattern of the Christian life is according to the Spirit. And our position in Christ comes with responsibility. I love the way Robert Mounts puts it. Quote, Privilege involves responsibility. Paul reminded his Christian brothers that the assurance of resurrection by the indwelling spirit placed them under obligation. That obligation, however, is not to the sinful nature to live according to its demands. Dear ones, the obligation for those who are in Christ is to God. It's no longer to the flesh. It's to please God and to live according to his word. No longer in bondage to the flesh, therefore, believers have been set free to live according to the Spirit. Christian, this is who you are. You are no longer under the dominion of sin and the flesh and the law as a means of salvation. You have been set free. You have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You have been enabled to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan will tell you that you are still condemned. That because you still have remaining sin, there's no hope for you. That that remaining sin indicates that you are still in bondage to sin. But here we have faithful teaching from Paul that we have been set free from the bondage of sin and its tyranny, from the slavery of the flesh and its tyranny, and from the bondage and tyranny of Satan. We've been set free. Therefore, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, for sin will have no dominion over you. These verses illuminate What Paul is saying in verse 12, don't they, that Christians are not indebted to or subject to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And to make clear what happens to those who do live according to the flesh, Paul writes in verse 13, look there with me, for if you live according to the flesh, you will what? You will die. Did you notice Paul's words. Death is the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. And this death, again, is not simply referring to physical death, but to a much worse death. That is death in hell, the second death, everlasting damnation. As one writer states, Paul uses the word death in the fullest theological sense here. A parallel passage underscoring these points is found in Galatians 5. Would you please turn there with me? Galatians 5, 16 through 24. Much of what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is paralleled in the book of Galatians. Paul writes, But I say, 
Walk by the Spirit, you will not, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, that is, the law as a means of salvation. Now the works of the flesh are, so these are the works of the flesh, they are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, now listen, that those who do such things or practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's that mortification. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this crucifying of the flesh is something that doesn't just happen once. It's happening every day. Putting to death the deeds of the body, of the flesh. When a person is in the flesh, living according to the flesh, the pattern of his or her life is one of unrepentant sin, living according to the works of the flesh and still evidently under its dominion. But those who walk according to the Spirit bear the fruit of the Spirit because they are under the dominion of Christ. And so the pattern of their lives are not the things that we just read. The pattern of their lives are the things that we see in the fruit of the Spirit. At times, of course, this pattern of walking in the Spirit will be disrupted by indwelling sin and the giving in to temptation but it's not the course or pattern of his or her life. There's a wonderful illustration that uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives. Uh, He was a mid-20th century preacher from London. He was Welsh, um, uh, a wonderful man of God, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He describes the progress of sanctification in this way. It's like a mountain climber a mountain climber who begins a long journey up the mountain of Christian growth and sanctification. At the beginning of that journey, he seems to stumble a good bit. He sometimes falls backwards. He's a young and immature believer. But indwelt and empowered by the Spirit, he or she continues his arduous journey up the mountain. Indeed, he cannot help but keep going, for the Spirit leads and empowers him to keep going. As he gets older, he stumbles less, but there are times of backsliding, and he, but this is the good news, he does not go back to the beginning. He does not roll back down the mountain, back to the beginning. He is... He is onward and upward. 
He's made much progress over the years, and it shows. He, he or she is making their way up the mountain, enjoying better and better views of God's beauty and truth and getting ever closer to the celestial city. It's a wonderful illustration. We hear echoes of Pilgrim's progress there, I suppose. But it's good news, dear believer, that wherever you are, on this journey of sanctification, you must not be discouraged. You have been set free to grow in Christ. You have been set free from the bondage of the flesh to walk in the Spirit and grow and mature in Christ. Sometimes this growth, of course, feels slow and at times even feels like it's regressing. But the work that the Lord started... He will complete. He will not only complete it, he will continue it. He will continue it and he will complete it all by his sovereign grace. Our Westminster Standards uh, on sanctification says, what is sanctification? It is a work of God's free grace. He is working in us and we are working it out. He's empowering us, and in his power and in his strength, we are carrying out this work of sanctification. Who's doing it? God is doing it, and we are doing it. And we are only doing it because God is doing it, because we can't do it on our own. And that work of sanctification includes what the old Puritans called mortification. Mortification. That is the active and purposeful killing of remaining indwelling sin. Let me explain for just a moment so we're all clear. When a person becomes a Christian, they are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life by being united to the risen and ascended Christ. In union with Christ, at that very moment that a person is brought, that a sinner is brought into union with Christ, All kinds of wonderful things are received by faith. In fact, faith itself is received as a gift. And and as you receive that gift of faith, lest any man should boast, after you're made alive, after regeneration, you're given the gift of faith, you begin to receive all these blessings, all these benefits of your union with Christ. And in union with Christ... Because you are forgiven of your sin and clothed with the very righteousness of Christ, you stand before God justified. You stand before God declared righteous. Not because of anything you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. You are also adopted into God's family. It's another benefit and gift. And also a process begins in union with Christ called what? Sanctification. Called what? Sanctification. Just making sure you're awake. Sanctification. And in that work of sanctification, there are two things going on, at least. One is that the image of God that was shattered within us at the fall begins to be repaired, and the image to which it's being repaired upon is Christ, or two. two. We are being made more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Look at Romans 8. 
In verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's why we were predestined. That's why Christ died for us. That's why He's come to save us and to free us from the bondage of sin, to conform us anew to the image of Christ. So as we stand before God justified and have a right standing with Him forever, in this life, sin still remains in us. And so we fight against that sin. That's called mortification. We seek to kill that sin. We crucify that sin. Christians, by the Spirit, mortify remaining indwelling sin. Look with me at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does this mean? Have you ever thought about a major part of your Christian life, your sanctification being mortification, putting to death the deeds of the flesh or of the body? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul writes. What does this mean? Putting to death the deeds of the body is the same as the mortification of indwelling sin. God commands his people to actively and continually kill remaining indwelling sin. John Bunyan wrote a book called Holy War. And we are called to make holy war against our sin. We don't give sin safe quarter. We don't allow it to go unrepented of. We do not let it breathe. We strangle it. We do not let it grow. We crush it. We do not let sin spread in our hearts. We pull it up. We do not let it live. We crucify it. That's mortification. That, dear ones, is putting to death the deeds of the body. The deeds of the body being sin. And it's a lifelong task. It's not... uh, sort of a six-month program. It it, it can't be done in a year. It's lifelong. It's it's an ultra-marathon. Sin is always trying to gain strength, and we are always called, therefore, to mortify it. John Owen, which I'll be mentioning a lot in the next couple of weeks, wrote a book on this very subject, on this very verse called The Mortification of Indwelling Sin in Believers. In his notable book on this subject, he writes this, quote, The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin is always trying to undermine and destroy your faith. Satan uses and tempts you with the sin in your own heart. This is how it all works. And so we must be, even those who are the choicest believers, Owen says, the strongest believers, who are sure, uh, who have great assurance in their life, they ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And this is so important. Paul is making it abundantly clear that just because Christians are delivered from the bondage of sin, it doesn't mean that they are free from the active killing of remaining indwelling sin. 
Remember, sin no longer reigns, but it still what? Remains. Sin no longer reigns over us. It no longer sits on the throne of our hearts. We've been freed in Christ. But it does remain. It's like when we went into Iraq and displaced Saddam Hussein from his throne. But we know the battle, the war wasn't over just because uh, the leader was thrown off of his throne. There were all kinds of skirmishes going on. That's the Christian life. Satan no longer rules and reigns over us, nor does sin, nor does the flesh, nor does the law as a, as a kind of means for salvation. No, these things no longer uh, are over us and have dominion over us. But sin still remains in us. It's no longer our master because we are in Christ, but it still lingers in our nature. We no longer live in sin or under the bondage of sin, but sin still lives in us, this side of heaven. John Murray, that great uh, 20th century professor of systematic theology at, at Westminster Theological Seminary, he, he rightly states that, quote, the believer's once for all death to the law and to sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. Now listen, it makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. And so every sin, dear brothers and sisters, think of it this way. Every sin that dwells in you is fighting for survival, is, is trying to resuscitate, wants life. Pride and lust are trying to gain strength. Selfishness and vanity are working to stay alive and grow. Worldliness and idolatry and greed are trying to take over our hearts. But we are called to mortify those sins through faith in Christ and with repentance, spirit-wrought repentance, and the diligent use of the means of grace, the word preached and read, the sacraments and prayer. Next time, we're going to consider more of the nature and spiritual resources for the mortification of remaining indwelling sin. For now, I simply want to ask this, dear ones. What remaining sin has gained strength and position in your life? This is a time to examine ourselves, isn't it? Perhaps it's pride, lust, covetousness. Vanity. Maybe it's bitterness and, and unforgiveness. Perhaps something else. A chief aspect of our sanctification is to identify and go to war against indwelling sin. Is that the way that you conceive of the Christian life? If not, you should. Because Paul wants us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants God's people to understand the Christian life in these terms. Another question is, does indwelling sin have a safe place in your life? Has it been given safe quarter? Is there some uh, secret sin, some, some secret life that you're living that you are allowing to go on and gain strength and power to take over your heart and life? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, as pilgrims on the way, we come believing. We come believing God's glorious promises of grace through Jesus Christ. 
that Christ lived a perfect life according to the law for us because we fail to every day, that Christ died a sacrificial and atoning death on Calvary for our sins, and that he rose from the dead on the third day for our justification. Christ did all of this for unworthy sinners like us. Through faith, we are united to him, and all that is his is ours. Imagine if someone came to you and said, all right, all that is, um, all that is uh, Elon Musk's is yours. Everything he owns, you own it too. Joint ownership. You might think, wow, that sounds amazing. I'm going to go up to space tomorrow. I'm going to drive one of those cars. But think of this. These are just worldly possessions and wealth. All that is Christ is yours because he died for you. He lived for you and he rose for you and he lives for you now. All the debt of our sin was paid for by him. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, we are justified. In Christ, we are robed with the very righteousness of God and we are wearing his spotless suit right now by faith. But that's not all. United to him, we are being restored, remade into the image of Christ. A central part of that work is mortification, and it's through the Lord's Supper that he enables and progresses this work of mortification. As we come to the table, as we examine our lives, as we repent of our sin and do not allow that sin to fester and to grow, we repent of it, we turn from it, and we come to the table, we receive God's forgiveness, and we say no to sin and yes to Christ. Amen? That's what we do when we come to the Lord's table. That's what we do when we hear preaching. That's what we do when we remember our baptism. We do not let sin flourish and grow. We put it to death. We crucify it. And we do so all by grace. Nicholas von Zinzendorf wrote centuries ago, quote, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Would you pray with me? Our loving Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Grace that not only regenerates and justifies, but also sanctifies. And Lord, as we uh, have heard this teaching on mortification and will, God willing, continue to in coming weeks, we ask that you would help us as your redeemed children to remember that the Christian life is not only about growing more like Christ, but also crucifying, remaining, indwelling sin, letting it have no life no power within us. We always know, Lord, that it will be there in some measure until we die. But we pray that as we grow, we would not give it safe quarter. And may you receive all the glory as we seek to please you with our lives, living by faith and not by sight and resting alone in your work for our salvation. 